The following podcast contains spoilers and words that my mother would prefer I did not say. We watch it. Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of We Watched a Thing. This week I'm lucky enough to have the wonderful DT from Space Castle back on the show, one of the first guests who hopped on with me after Topher left, and now here he is again. How you doing, mate? I'm good, man. I'm thrilled to be back. This is awesome. Mate, this is good, and I'm really excited about the film we're going to watch. We went back and forth for a little while, and you know, I was tossing up whether we watch something older or whatnot. And then you said, have you seen The Last Duel? Because I think it would be really cool to talk about. And I hadn't actually, but I, I, this was on my radar when it came out last year to do an episode on. And I just never found the right guess for it. So this is going to be great. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. For the sake of your yeah. listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so did you catch this one in cinemas or? No, I caught it on Netflix. Uh, it yeah. didn't last long in cinemas here, especially with COVID and everything going on. So I yeah. caught it when it became a Netflix exclusive. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that that's the way most people caught it. When you look at how the box office did this did, it didn't do great, which honestly no. I think is a real shame. And we'll get to that. Um, so let's hop straight into it. The Last Duel is a 2021 epic historical drama film directed by Ridley Scott from a screenplay by Nicole Holofcener, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon based on the 2004 book The Last Duel, A True Story of Trial by Combat in Medieval France by Eric Jaeger. It stars Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer and Ben Affleck. And what is it about, DT? The Last Duel is about Matt Damon's horrible mullet, Ben Affleck's <laughs> terrible bleached blonde goatee, and the overcoming of both of these obstacles to create what is probably the best Ridley Scott movie in the last 20 years. <laughs> that, is, that is a great description. Yeah, it's true, man. I could not believe it when I saw that mullet. <laughs> You know, the good thing about it is the fact that it's a historical piece. And once you get absorbed into that, like the weird, like aesthetic choices, which yeah. are weird to us, but not to them back then, kind of fade yeah. away because the movie is so, so great. See, I mean, here here in Australia, the mullet is still alive and kicking. So <laughs> uh, in parts of America, certain parts of America, it is too. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I agree with you, though. I I loved this movie. I think this was a very strong Ridley Scott film. I agree, probably his best in, in about 10 years or so. So a little bit of backstory for the movie. Uh, hopefully everybody's seen this before they're listening to this. If not, stop right now. Sorry, Billy. <laughs> but go watch the movie because it's brilliant. But uh, it's an interwoven story about two men in the late 1300s France, which takes place during the Hundred Years' War. And uh, it's a series of events where Adam Driver, who is playing uh, Jacques de Legree, and Matt Damon, who is playing Jean uh, de Carouge, excuse me. <laughs> uh, it's French is not my native language. I apologize. <laughs> the two of them, they meet in battle and uh, they have different accounts of who saved whose life because yeah. they both think they're the hero. Yeah. And, you know, they come up together and their fates are intertwined with Pierre Dallinson. Yeah, Pierre Dallinson, who is the count, who has been given lordship of the two of them by uh, King Charles, I believe. And it's this continuing feud between the two of these figures who it's, it's kind of egged on and kind of fueled by Ben Affleck's character. And it, it basically culminates into, uh, you know, Adam Driver's character meeting Marguerite, immediately falling in love with her and pursuing her to the point where he can't, he can't stop himself, even though he probably can because yeah. he's a slime ball and he rapes yeah. her. But yeah, it's this interwoven story about these men who, who view themselves as being important, way more important than they are. And yeah. this a grand view of themselves and, their actions. And what's interesting is when you get to the point where Marguerite actually openly accuses Legree of rape, 
actually goes to a trial and it's decided that it's going to be decided by combat, which is not the last duel that was ever decided this way. I think it was the second to last historically, but it's the most famous for being one of the last because thousands of people came from all around to, to come and witness this duel. And we don't learn until later that when Matt Damon's character accepts this duel to the death, that if he loses, by default, Marguerite is seen as being a liar because combat yeah. decides the verdict of this, this this trial, so to speak. And if De Carouge loses, Marguerite will be killed as well. She'll be executed. She's not yeah. aware of this. So Matt Damon agrees to this, this duel to the death to decide you know, the verdict of this trial, knowing that if he dies, she's going to die too. And you learn very coldly that it's not about her and her honor and protecting his wife. Yeah. It's about the slight and the, you know, the perceived slight that he feels from Legree and their own perceived duel between each other, their constant feud, and the fact that he feels his property has been vandalized. It's really yeah. effed up. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. Like the, the courtroom scene where, you know, they're at trial and, and it's decided it will be decided by duel. I mean- it is, it's heartbreaking, honestly. And again, that the beautiful part is that that's from memory only seen in her chapter. I believe so. Yeah, the actual yeah. trial itself is sort of the culmination of those three stories, kind of being sort of broken apart and kind exactly. of discovered for us as the audience what the true meaning of each of them was. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and you're right, Damon. He's not. He's not really doing it for her by any stretch of the imagination, you know. And when when she's sitting there pregnant and they're <laughs> they're throwing the science in her face that well you can't get pregnant from rape that's just science, <laughs> right? You can't conceive and unless you feel pleasure. Like what exactly the and hell? <laughs> like she's been through enough, and they're just trying to make her feel like the worst piece of shit in the world, <laughs> right? And it's just the heartbreaking thing is that you know. Like, yeah, this is a historical drama, but it's not ancient history. And it's honestly, this kind of stuff still happens in a lot of parts of the world very recently. Absolutely. Like, it's it's always been said, like, you know, you learn from history. Otherwise, you're doomed to repeat it. So, yeah. th there's a very stark and very brutal, but very poignant and very important moral to the story, for sure. Yeah. Basically, don't be an asshole. Don't rape women <laughs> and treat them like property. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's kind of <laughs> shocking that that needs to be seen as a lesson. Like, that's kind of like, right? you know, yeah. we should know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's get straight into it then. I mean, the direction by Ridley Scott is fucking beautiful. This is such an incredibly, like, gorgeous looking film. The, the, the action sequences, this isn't an action movie by any stretch, but the action sequence, particularly towards the end of the film where you get the, you know, titular duel, is staggeringly gorgeous to look at. It's so well put together. It is. And it's brutal, too. It's one of the better fight is, scenes. Yeah. But the direction is is fantastic. This is this is peak Ridley Scott. We haven't seen this Ridley Scott since probably Kingdom of Heaven, which is a shame. But he's back in full form in this movie, and he just nails everything. Like you said, the movie is absolutely stunning to look at. The cinematography is stunning. The direction is spot on. The entire cast is just firing on all cylinders. It is just a, a gem of a film. It really is. It is. I think a lot of that comes from the screenplay as well. Are you a Ben Affleck, Matt Damon fan? I am, actually. And the funny thing is, it's like when they were kids, they wrote Goodwill Hunting and they won an Oscar. 
And then they spent the last 20 years not writing with each other again until this movie. And they come back together and write this movie together. And this movie's freaking amazing. Like, dudes, why did you stop writing with each other as partners? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I had the exact same thought. And like, I famously adore Ben Affleck. I think he's brilliant. And I think he's a top notch director as well. Like, yeah. it was interesting approaching this movie knowing that, you know, he and. Damon were co-writers on it, but then Ridley Scott had directed it. And I couldn't help but think what it might have looked like had Affleck decided to direct, which he very easily could have done, given that realistically his his acting part is quite small in the film. Sure, but, definitely, yeah. I mean, geez, I'm glad Scott did it. <laughs> yeah, like I said, Scott has just got that knack for those historical, kind of mildly action, more centered on drama films. Like I said, like yes. Kingdom of Heaven, uh, Gladiator is one of my favorite films of all time. He just he shoots his films in a way that conveys the epicness and the the absolute tone and feel of that point in history. It's great. That's true. I mean, even just the color palette of this film, you can almost smell medieval France. Mm-hmm. I feel like like <laughs> there's something really kind of earthy and cold and misty about this film that just it feels like the time. Mm-hmm. It's very dark, very gray. Lots of deep blues and blacks, and yeah. Uh, the contrast in this film is is striking. It reminds me very much of uh, the Green Knight, which you and I spoke about before. Yeah, where yeah, it absolutely makes you feel like you're you're immersed in that point in history because it's just it's bleak, it's overcast. There's no sunshine. It's it's rainy. It's muddy. You can smell the earth. You can feel the humidity in the air, and that sort of like utter lack of vitamin D throughout. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also similar to The Green Knight, this film is structured in in chapters, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the structure of the film and the screenplay then, given, you know, we both said that we're fans of the script and we both like Affleck and Damon. Um, let's talk about the kind of Rashomon-type structure that this film has. I think that it's a perfect way to tell this story. I think if you had told this story just as a straight narrative from the one perspective... There's not a film there. That, to me, doesn't have the impact that this film does by the finale. Do you agree with that? 100%. And I love the fact that you called it a Rashomon because that's exactly the word I was using to describe it to friends who haven't seen it. Because yeah. just like the Kurosawa film, it's very much the film is structured in a way where you're getting the story from different different perspectives as it leads up to you know the titular last duel. And yeah. what's clever about it is the fact that I believe when they're writing the screenplay, Damon Affleck and uh, uh, Center each wrote different chapters, the three chapters, right? Yeah. which is really cool because you're, you're, you're dividing the film into three parts and you're getting a different voice for all three parts, which is very, yeah. very important because the story itself being told in three parts is being told by three different voices, three different accounts of the events that happen. It's, I think it's awesome that they did it that way. I think the movie is... Absolutely 100% better for having done it that way, too. Yeah, definitely. You know what else I find really interesting is that, I don't know, I'd be curious to hear what you thought about this. I think the difference between this and Rashomon is that that is structured more as as a mystery type thing, where you're getting the different perspectives and, and everyone is kind of telling their own different accounts. And while this is similar to that, for example, the the scene, the rape scene, which is horrific is almost identical both times it's told it's like leading up to the actual physical rape everything that happens up to that i swear is shot for shot the same scene and there are very very minor differences 
it is very clear, even in Adam Driver's telling of this story, that he is the guilty party. Like this, this movie doesn't try structured as a mystery where you, where it's like a he said, she said, and you're trying to work out whose account of the truth is what. To me, it's clear from the beginning of the film what the reality is, and I, and that's why I love when the, we get the final chapter. You know, and the title card fades away to just leave the truth yes. instead of, you know, yeah. her version of the truth. Did you feel the same way? Like, am I reading it wrong that I don't feel this is a mystery and that's not really what the, the three stories is adding? No, it's not about uncovering the mystery. Uh, the events, like you said, play out essentially the same way, just with subtle differences and not so subtle yeah. differences for obvious reasons, because it's the account of these events being told by three different people. So we know what happened. It's not a matter of solving the mystery. It's a matter of solving the context of those events. Yeah. And the yeah, fact I that agree, we receive yeah. the context from these three different characters who have wildly differing opinions of both themselves in these events yeah. as they take place and the events themselves. Yeah. And that's where the movie's strength lies is the fact that we're, let's, well, I mean, we've already gotten into spoilers at this point. I'm just going to roll with it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> the fact that you know, initially you think you're seeing this storyline from the perspective of two men who think themselves very chivalrous, yeah. very honorable. They think they're doing the right thing. They think they're stoic, strong men and, and the way men should be, especially for that era. And we learn through, through Marguerite's tale of everything, her, her, uh, you know, her recount of the events that both of these men's both of these men are jackasses essentially they're they're yeah. terrible human yeah. beings you know i mean like uh like jacques jacques legree is a terrible human being he's a rapist obviously but um yeah. but jean Le, jean de carouge is not a great person either so yeah, like you said right. you get up yeah. to the events of the actual rape wherein you know the titular last battle is a result or the last duel is a result is the fact that legree does think he's pursuing this woman in a chivalrous way. He thinks that she's yeah. playing hard to get and like, and so on and so forth. And his account of it is that he is pursuing her and she's wanting it as well. Yeah. But she's because, lady. So she, right. of course she's going to say no, because she's mad. She has to relent. She has to run away. And he thinks he's, yeah. he thinks he's Pepe Le Pew and he's like chasing her down and like romancing yes. her. And she's eventually <laughs> going to give in. And the actual truth of, the whole event is the fact that he forced himself on her brutally yep. and violently yes. thinking that he was conquesting her, like, like winning her over as a prize. And therein lies the rub of this movie. And what I think is really brilliant about it is the fact that both of these men think that they're chivalrous, but they're actual, they're actually deluded, horrible pieces of crap. Yep. And the truth is, is the movie is a very biting and very brutal account of how men often, even today perceive women as, objects you know yes. things to be pursued or to be conquered or to be stolen away as property and the movie just brilliantly conveys that and it doesn't pull any punches in doing so yeah i i agree 100 percent, and that to me is why the ending of this film is so brilliant because as you say jacques is he's a he's a piece of work as well he's a real piece of shit quite honestly he's he's cold he's and he's, he's he views marguerite husband. as property yeah that's right he really does think of her as property the scene where which is absolutely heartbreaking where she tells him what's happened and first he violently accuses her of like well is this true and then basically it's like well you know he's not going to be the last one to have had you it's like oh fuck that's just disgusting yeah and that's what makes the ending of this film great is that in the duel you you're not really rooting for either of the men. You're rooting for Marguerite, which is why it's fantastic that the duel is seen as part of her chapter. And, you know, 
when Damon wins, what really makes the moment great is 10 seconds later when you get the title card that he died a few years <laughs> later and, and she lived on for 30 more years. And, and that, she never she never remarried. She lived happily on her own exactly. running the, uh, the, the, the De Cruz estate. Yeah. Exactly. And you're like, you go, girl. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about the acting then, because as yes. we said, it, it's told from these three points of views and and i didn't know that but it's it's brilliant like you said that it's it was written initially by three different points of views as well to kind of add to that storytelling um i think the acting in this film is top notch i mean all of the performances i i was absolutely flabbergasted that affleck was up for a razzie for this film that just seems cruel and unusual (laughs) The Razzies like maybe kind you know, of... nominate his goatee or something, but like... <laughs> sure, yeah, nominate the yeah. costume designer if you have to. But Affleck rules in this movie; like he is he's the fucking great. He's awesome. He's mean as hell, and he's like this this horrible, yeah. like just like self indulgent, like playboy, like exactly. Jerk. And you know what else is great? I-, I was stunned, really, given how grim this film is, and given how dark the subject matter is. There's actually a fair amount of fun injected throughout the film like i think you know affleck's character for example it's very easy to to laugh at him and i think that the film does that um i think there's quite a few kind of humorous moments in the film which i think is a really smart way of writing it given that it is so long and with such a heavy subject matter having those few moments of levity really works but i think that affleck was fantastic in this role He's great because he's equal parts funny and also spiteful and terrible and mm. kind of this terrible tyrant who is almost gleefully fueling the flames of this feud between, you know, yep. Legree and uh, De Carouge, and he knows he's doing it. Like he keeps like like uh like when when uh De Carouge, uh is set to marry Marguerite, part of the dowry is this large, you know, very famous tract of land. Yeah. And uh uh Dallinson, played by Affleck takes that away very subtly and gives it to Legree. Yes. And that ends, ends up in a, a previous lawsuit where in uh, De Carouge is actually suing uh, Pierre De, uh, Dallinson for that tract of land, which ultimately gets dismissed because, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, King Charles doesn't give a crap. But Ben Affleck is, is very much just as part of this feud and is just as much an inciting factor of it is all of the actions between Legree and, uh, and De Carouge. And he plays that so well because you know he's this conniving like jerk, like he's yeah. this gluttonous, horrible guy. But he's also funny because he's you know he's royalty in France during the Hundred Years' War, and he doesn't yeah. give a crap. Like he he's, he just doesn't care. <laughs> that's right. Like that's the thing. Even though Dallinson clearly favors Legree, he he doesn't give a shit. Like when it comes to the final duel, you you don't really feel that he cares about the outcome it's just sure. a piece of entertainment to him it's entertainment like, that's exactly he what doesn't it is. care what happens to the two of them he doesn't care what happens to marguerite he's just there to watch and to fuel it on yeah yeah he's probably most sad that he lost his accountant <laughs> when, <laughs> yeah. when the Greek gets killed <laughs> yeah probably yeah he's got to go find somebody else to go and collect those war bonds and stuff door to door yeah <laughs> um jody coma i don't believe i've seen before honestly i'm probably wrong but she she's didn't strike been me here and there she's been um, here and there but she's an absolute force in this movie oh for such an understated role where she she's mostly until the very end sort of a passive character mm. she plays that passiveness and that sort of 
just unable to really do much for herself besides just playing the victim or not playing the victim, yes. but actually being the victim. She plays it with such, such nuance and such grace. Like yeah. Jodie Comer, she's going to be a big, huge thing really quickly. I agree. I agree. And I think this she movie is the first step towards that because she's fantastic in this movie. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm, I think that it's actually genius that she is such a passive character for the first half of the movie. Like, when you're seeing it through their perspectives, like, it's funny. She's Decarouge's wife. She's Legree's supposed, you know, deepest love. And yet when they tell their own stories, she's barely a part of it. Like, exactly. she, is, she is barely there compared to, you know, their their duelist, their nemesis, and, and even their less than Ben Affleck. Uh, and so you really don't get a sense of her until we see it from her perspective. And that is such smart storytelling. And I just think it's br- she is excellent in this film. Yeah, I, I cannot wait to see more of her in films. I, I'm excited to see what she does next because she was just phenomenal in this. Yeah, I actually think for me, and this is going to sound insane, I kind of feel like the weakest of the four main performances is Matt Damon, to be honest. I, I think that he's good in the film, but I don't. I feel like he felt the most out of place to me. Uh, like, it's not just the mullet. <laughs> Maybe it's a little <laughs> bit the mullet. <laughs> Uh, maybe it was the Boston accent coming through. I don't know, but he, he felt the most out of place in terms of these characters to me. Uh, I don't think it's that. I think his his role is the least flashy and the least um, outwardly rewarding fair. for the audience. I mean, yeah. we're either seeing, seeing him as like this, this what he seems himself as being, this very stoic and very stone-faced, very honorable, but but cold because he has to be sort of man- and then we see him through the eyes of both Marguerite and um, and uh, Jacques Legree as being like this kind of cold, kind of heart like like heartless sort of like just mechanical sort of guy. So yeah. he's actually very good in the role, but he's playing a role that just there's not a whole lot of fanfare there. He doesn't get to play like you know the barrel chested womanizing warrior guy like Adam Driver does. He doesn't get to play like the you know the ridiculously over the top silly like gluttonous count that Affleck does he yeah. has to kind of play just sort of that guy who has to react to everything that happens around him and yeah. we get to see him play that role multiple ways because he reacts to it as you know feeling like he's this honorable guy who's taking care of business when in truth he's actually just this asshole who just wants to control all of his property and thinks everybody's out to get him which they kind of are <laughs> but no I don't think he's the weakest link I think he just has the, it's, I don't want to say the least interesting character because all these characters I feel are equally interesting. But yeah, but there's there's no flashiness to his character at all, and I think that's, that's honestly Dan Damon's credit that he does as well as he does in the role because there is no flash there. It's it's all very kind of sort of even kill until we see those flashes of De Cruz's temper. Yeah, oh, that's totally fair. Yeah. There's not really much to talk about in way of music. <laughs> the score I is just kind of there. I enjoy it. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I was going to bring up the score. I adored the score for this film. I okay. I loved it. Like, it's not as strong or as memorable as, say, Braveheart when you're sure. talking historical, you know. But I thought that not only did it serve its purpose, I thought it actually went above that. And I, I really, really adored the score for this film. Um, you know, and the the hints of kind of chanting and choral kind of singing that you get as well, I think really work. Like when the movie ended and credits started rolling, 
I sat there and kept them going, just mm. listening to the music. <laughs> I, Fair enough. I loved it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for me, I thought it was I thought it was serviceable. I thought it was just fine. I uh, it, it was very fitting for the piece, but I didn't. I didn't like go and like look up the soundtrack and listen to the soundtrack after the fact or any sort of thing like that. Yeah. It was perfectly serviceable, but it, I mean, I couldn't hum you any of the, and I guess that's not the point. I shouldn't be able to hum tunes from a historical drama, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it, I don't know. Maybe that's the credit to the composer whose name escapes me at the moment. I actually know it because he's done a bunch of other stuff, but uh, yeah, it is um, Harry Gregson Williams. Thank you. Yeah. 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 He's done a lot of stuff actually. And he's a good composer. Yeah. And I guess it's to his credit that, his music just became part of the tapestry of this film and part of sort of an integral part, but also a very natural part that didn't, I don't want to, I don't want to call it a slight that it didn't stick out to me, but it was just, it was very much a a fleshed out part of the film. It was, it fit it. So, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the awards season. Um, The last (laughs) film you and I spoke about was the green Knight, which I feel like deserved at least a couple of nods. Didn't get any, it didn't um, receive any nominations at all. Yeah. Which is and not only shocking to me, it's also a damn travesty. Yeah. This film is the same. This did not get a single Academy Award nomination. Mm. Um, it got a Razzie nomination, as we discussed, which is kind of cooked in the head as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I the uh, Honestly, I'm, I'm shocked. I have zero, zero words. <laughs> like, because, look. I don't know if this film would have won, but to me, this is absolutely a best picture contender. It's absolutely a best director contender. And I think that the screenplay and cinematography are incredibly strong as well. I would even go so far as to give Jodie Comer a nod for supporting actress, if not, you know, lead actress. She's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I've got thoughts on the 2022 Oscars in general. Uh, I don't want to do a blatant shameless plug, but we just talked about it this week on Space Castle about the fact that the Academy Awards are essentially broken at this point and yeah. they become more and more meaningless, mostly because the Academy no longer nominates who is most deserving of the nominations. Yeah. And it's all become so political and about taking out ads and spending money and, and trying to get noticed and whatnot because the Academy very honestly and very almost blatantly does not watch the movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And this is the, pro- I think the biggest problem is that People didn't see this movie. I think, yeah. you know, you'll, you only need to look at the box office to know that, that people didn't see this movie. And look, Ridley Scott didn't help by coming out and blaming millennials because, I mean, <sighs> I think you and I are around the same age. You'd be a millennial, right? I'm a millennial, late stage millennial. Yeah. 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 And here we are talking about how fantastic this movie is. I think, you know, I understand where his anger is coming from. He's put a lot of work into a beautiful film and nobody watched it. Yeah. But I don't think you can go blaming an entire demographic for that because <laughs> you just can't. Um, but I think it's 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 criminal that people didn't see this movie. But that's what 2020 and 2021 kind of were, unfortunately, due to the state of the world. Um, I, I think that the Academy, like you said, they are broken, definitely. And the thing that really bugs me about this film is that the only reason I can think that they didn't nominate it is that it feels too much like an Oscar film. <laughs> like, on paper, this is a Best Picture nominee. It's a Ridley Scott historical drama that has incredible things to say. Like, there's no reason this shouldn't have been nominated for Best Picture, 
other than that the Oscars, it seemed too Oscar-y to do that. And they want to show that they're different at the moment, that they've changed. But I think that's a poor excuse for not nominating this film. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Um, my my podcast co-host Alex put it very succinctly that it feels like the last 10 years ago, the Academy is constantly trying to course correct and trying to yes. change their perception in the public eye. Yeah, This is a movie that suffered from really bad marketing. It suffered from the fact that it came out on the tail end of a pandemic and it didn't last long at theaters. It didn't last long enough to make money. Yeah. And it landed as a Netflix exclusive, which unfortunately to the film's detriment is often viewed as being like a, oh, okay, it's like a like a bargain bin type movie that you can like just kind of write off. Like DVD release, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think the people who do the Razzies never saw the movie either because if they had, they would have realized this is a fantastic film. I this agree. is a movie yeah. that is... Right here, plain as day, the year it came out, well, it came out last year, that yeah. is already a hidden gem. And I think it's going to yeah. be a movie that's going to get its due and find an audience and become really beloved in like the le- like ne- within the next five years or so. Once people actually watch it and discover it and realize it's a phenomenal film, it's going to be something that we're going to look back really fondly and say like, yeah, why was this not nominated when they've expanded yeah. the, the category for best picture to 10 movies? Why was this not even nominated when it's amazing? Yeah, I agree. One one thing we've always done here at We Watch the Thing is when we do our top five of the year, we also do the top five from 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. For that very reason, we say that that's the best way to judge a film really is what has kind of stayed with you. Absolutely. Now, I saw, I saw this film too late for it to have made my top five last year. Yeah. But I can already tell you that if I'm still going in, in nine years – I think this film is absolutely going to be in my top five of 2021. I agree. I think it's a very, very well-made film that, despite its length, this is really hard to do for a film that's two and a half hours long, to actually be gripping and entertaining at the same time is is astounding. And for a movie that's essentially telling the same story three ways, yeah, I think a, I think a lot of people were turned off by that premise. And I think the fact that, well, again, to blame millennials a little bit, to kind of defend Ridley Scott, (laughs) I think a lot of millennials are like, I'm not going to watch the same movie three times in a row, but you're not. You're watching a wildly different movie three times in a row, played by the same actors, but played in very, very different and very direct ways. And that's the one thing, again, that's the one thing that people are going to take away from this years from now when they actually watch the movie. It's like... This is not boring. This isn't telling the movie three times in a row. This is three different, very distinct and very nuanced and very gripping accounts of the same story three times in a row. And for me, the runtime, I I didn't feel the runtime at all. Despite the fact that I was seeing essentially the same scenes told from different perspectives, I did not feel the two and a half hour runtime. I've felt the runtime for a lot of movies recently, (laughs) even Marvel movies where it's like, holy crap, why is this movie this long? But for me, like yep. the last duel was like a single sitting. I was riveted. I was having a great time throughout. I was completely riveted and just just blown away the, by the performances here and the direction on display. It's I don't want to say masterpiece because I don't throw that term, term around loosely. <laughs> yeah. But again, this is probably the best movie Ridley Scott has made in the last twenty years. This is right yeah. up there with Kingdom of Heaven for me. For like, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I watched this film at home. When you're watching a movie at home, it is so easy to just pull out your phone and scroll. And I've, unfortunately, I, I hate to admit it, 
I've done that with movies when I get bored and they're this long, but I didn't do that once. This film was very engaging from start to finish. And I didn't feel that runtime either. Absolutely. So how are you scoring The Last Duel then out of 10? I'm going to give it a solid 8.5. Yep. That's I think yeah, that's a, I think that's a, it's it's not perfect. Yeah. Um the performances are excellent, the direction is fantastic. Uh, I I am I don't throw around 9s and 10s loosely. But for <laughs> me to give something an 8.5 is very very high praise. You have to be like the Godfather or Citizen Kane to get a 10 out of me. So an 8.5 for this movie is is super high praise. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm exactly. I'm an eight. Uh, I I tend not to do the the halves, so I I could see this maybe creeping up to a nine on subsequent watches, but I agree word for word with what you said just then. I'm an eight. I think it's very very strong film. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me, man. Can you tell everyone a little bit about Space Castle and where they can find you guys and some of the new things you're doing and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a weekly podcast that comes out every Wednesday. It's available on every platform, known to man. And uh, we call it your clubhouse and hours for all things nerdy. So it's me and two of my closest friends, Seth and Alex. And every week we get together and we argue and discuss and debate and make jokes about everything that's happening in pop culture. We discuss video games, movies, television shows, books, you name it. If you're a nerd and you're into it, chances are we have talked about it or we'll talk about it. And uh, we've actually recently launched a brand new YouTube series that we're super excited about called Real Drunk, wherein we take a classic film and we watch it and we devise a drinking game for it. Then we film ourselves doing that drinking game while watching the movie. And then after we're fully inebriated by crushing beers and whiskey for two hours, we then try and do a retrospective review of the movie. <laughs> so far, uh, we're two episodes in. The next episode will drop very shortly. Yeah. Uh, the reception has been fantastic. People are really digging it. We're having a blast doing it for reasons both obvious and probably not so obvious. <laughs> but um, we think it's fun and unique in that a lot of these times, like you're never going to see a drinking game for like, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie. Like we're trying to be original <laughs> with stuff that we're doing or like Tropic Thunder or something like that. Yeah. And also you get the perspective of three people who are very, very into film trying to break down the nuances in good and yeah. bad points of a film while blasting. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. It's so. a lot of fun. And also, honestly, a bit of a nerd thing here from a production perspective, it's very well put together. It's really nice Thank looking, you, man. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. It's it's awesome, man. Yeah, definitely. I'd highly recommend checking it out. It's it's a fun concept. It's similar. Topher and I used to do that quite a bit. We've done our marathon episodes where we did all the Fast and the Furiouses or the Harry Potters. Yeah. And the, la the last two films were always drinking games. Um, peek into the future here. In May, we're taking over the show, doing a uh, a marathon of all eight direct-to-DVD films that Bruce Willis was in last year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. He, he Like, I don't know what he was doing. He, he was in literally eight direct-to-DVD films, each one worse than the last. When we were talking about it, we're like, well, how are we going to decide what order to watch them in? And Toby's like, we'll do it from highest rating to lowest rating um i had to go to metacritic rotten tomatoes and imdb because half of them don't even have scores on metacritic yeah the the lowest on imdb is a 2.3 so um, and the highest is a 4.4 which is low for imdb scores so They're terrible so yeah i, I think i don't I think that's know it's gonna be fun 
I don't know what's going on with Bruno these days. I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if he's just stopped caring and it's just about the money or something else is going on. But man, he cranked out so many terrible movies. And oh. what he does is he he gets these contracts and he uh, he'll show up on set for like one or two days and that's it. Yeah, they'll film yeah. all of his face scenes. And then anytime you see him like running or like see from behind, it's always a very, very obvious body double. It's great. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me, man. This has been awesome. Next week, I will be joined by our great friend, San from Movie Reviews and 20 Qs again, talking about The Batman, which we're both getting to opening night. So I think that's that'll drop early. I think that'll be a bonus episode. And then next week... I'll be joined for my first patron-led episode. Top-level patrons of the show get to come on as a guest and pick the movie. So I'll be joined by a great friend of the show, David Powell, talking about a movie I've actually never seen, The Cell from 2000, which it's a blind spot of mine. I know I should have gotten to it. Have you seen it? Oh, the one with Jennifer Lopez? Jennifer Lopez, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, what was, what was the name of that director? Tarman uh, or Tarson. something? Tarson. Yeah, I've seen yeah. it. It's You're going to have a fun time with that. It's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So David has decided that he wants to go through Tarsum's entire filmography at some point. So, so like both films? <laughs> I think he's done four. So, <laughs> so he's done The Cell, The Fall, and then he did some um, Cinderella remake as well. I think with Julia Roberts. Really? Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. a blind spot for me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that'll be fun. But anyway, thanks so much for joining me. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can do that at wewatchthething.com or wewatchthething at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at wewatchthething. If you want to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wewatchthething, and I'll catch you next week. You're still here? The, the show's over. Go home. Go. But if you can't get enough of We Watched a Thing, why don't you check out our Patreon page? There's tons of behind-the-scenes content, heaps of bonus episodes. You can get full, unedited videos of each episode recording. You can pick a movie for me to do on the show, or even come and join me while I talk about it. So why don't you head over to patreon.com forward slash We Watched a Thing. Go watch a movie.